Hey everybody, my name's Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church at Norton. Uh, if I haven't met you, I'd love to meet you at some point. Uh, glad you're tuning in today. Uh, I want to continue where Ethan left off last week uh, in our series, The Truth About Lies. <clears throat> uh, today I want to talk about the, the third enemy to living for <clears throat> third enemy to living for Jesus. Uh, as we've been talking about these triplets from uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. So we have the world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, the devil. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, and following its desires and thoughts, the flesh, the world, the devil, the flesh. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Uh, before I go any further, I just want to pray together. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for not leaving us here, deserving wrath. But Lord, we know that as that passage continues, it's because of your great love for us through your grace that, that you made us alive with Christ and have given us new life. Father, thank you for this indescribable gift. And Lord, help us to, to live in this world in a way that, that shines the light bright on Jesus. Lord, we just ask that you would open our eyes to your truth today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we have this evil triad of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've looked at the devil and the flesh, but what role does the world play into all this? What does Paul mean by the ways of this world? Uh, what does Jesus mean by the term the world? It's, it's an important question because the sec second half of our Bibles, the New Testament uses, that, uses this word world 209 times. <laughs> uh, here's what we need to understand. Jesus, Paul, and, and John use the concept of the world in at least three different ways. I mean, it's very similar for like our word ball. If I say, hey, go have a ball, it may mean, hey, go get a, a round spherical object. It may mean have a great time. Or I may be, say, be saying, uh, go plan a fancy dance, uh, wh whatever it is. But there's three different definitions to it. Well, the, the world comes from a Greek word that you might know or be familiar with. It's cosmos or cosmos, cosmos. Um, Cosmos, you, you might remember the PBS series by, by Carl Sagan. I mean, he definitely had an opposing worldview to Christianity by stating the cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. And as we'll see, that's a very naturalistic way of looking at the world that we're in. So cosmos simply means uh, the world. But the Bible uses it in at least three different ways. Number one, it describes the universe. It describes the earth, our planet, our, our physical world. Uh, Paul, who's addressing the philosophers in Athens, used it this way. Acts 17, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by human hands. In this sense, the world is, is God's creation. Someone's described it as the, the theater to display God's power. I had the opportunity just a couple weekends ago to go with my brother and our boys to, to West Virginia. Um, 
We definitely saw God's creativity and, and power at work. And I think even here at home, I, I think we experienced the best of fall, the beginning of last week. Uh, beautiful colors, falling leaves, blue skies, warm temps. Uh, you gotta love this time of year. Um, the world can be a beautiful place that declares God's glory. So when the Bible says don't love the world, it's not referring to this physical world. It doesn't mean you can't love rocks and trees and sunsets. In fact, I believe that that once you say yes to Jesus, you actually appreciate the created world more than you did before. Because now you have a relationship with the one who made it. Now you look at it through different eyes. It's a gift from God. Well, that's one way, uh, the world, what the world means. The second, cosmos or the world, can also be used, be used to describe humanity as a whole. Mankind, people such as when Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, if, the, if God loves the world of people, we too are supposed to love the world of people. The third definition, the, the world can be used a third way and it's the most prominent use we find in our Bibles. It refers to a world system of practices and standards associated with a godless society. In other words, anything opposed to God. So you think about this, here we are in a physical world surrounded by a world of people, but dominated by a world system. A world system whose values and standards and ideas are controlled by Satan, the devil. We read in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age or, or of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. It's part of, the, it's part of the cycle that we've been talking about these last few weeks. The devil deceives and twists the truth in a way that appeals to the dis, disordered desires of the flesh flesh, which are then normalized and codified by the world system that we live in. I was trying to think of another way to illustrate this, so here's my best try. <clears throat> Remember when the, the circus used to come to town and the circus was a big deal, or, or maybe you watched the musical The Greatest Showman? Uh, I never went to the circus. Uh, for one thing, I, I've never really liked clowns. I had this reoccurring nightmare as a kid that I'd open my bedroom closet door and, and Ronald McDonald would chase me down on a mini bike. Yeah, it's funny now, but it wasn't so funny then. In fact, uh, Ronald still creeps me out a little. But you think about it this way, <clears throat> the world is a circus. The devil is the ringmaster. In fact, some of you who like that musical, you, you might even say Satan is the greatest showman. The ringmaster's job is to excite the crowd with great exaggeration and, and pointing them to attractions that are meant to, to appeal and to entertain the audience, very much like the flesh. And so the ringmaster rolls out the bearded lady and, and the two-headed man and the, the elephant with, with ears so large he can fly. And, and where does all this happen? It happens under the big top. In other words, the, the world we live in is the big top where we go to find what appeals to us, entertains us, helps us forget our reality. 
even while the ringmaster orchestrates the whole show. And see, in this context, the weirder it is, and, and, and the more distorted it seems, the more normal it becomes. C.S. Lewis wrote, the world is not our final destination, but it is a merry inn along the way. You see, the truth is God has packed a lot of great things in this world for us to enjoy. And we can fill our minds with things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Uh, the things that are necessary to our spiritual health. But the, the ringmaster will do everything he can to distort what God has blessed us with in a, in a way that the, the world becomes more and more appealing. And love for God, love for his ways, love for his truth becomes less and less. But what does that look like in, in real life? John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, reminds, of, reminds us of a story of a, a pretty, <clears throat> that was pretty big at the beginning of this century. Uh, the MT, at the uh, MTV Music Awards, Carson Daly was getting ready to introduce Britney Spears. But first he had a surprise for the audience. This, this guy, his name was Sean Fanning, the creator of a music app called Napster, walked on the stage with a Metallica t-shirt. And Daly said, a nice shirt, in which Fanning responded, well, a friend of mine shared it with me. Now, you must be like, well, what's, what's that all about? The, the audience went wild. Why? Because a few months before this, the metal band uh, Metallica was working in the studio on a song called I Disappear for the upcoming Mission Impossible movie. And one morning they got up and their song was playing on the radio all across the country. But the problem was, it had never been released. In fact, it wasn't even finished. And someone stole the song, released it unfinished. Well, they traced the theft back to Napster and its founder, uh, Sean Fanning, who not only stole the song, but had made Metallica's entire catalog of music available for download for free. Well, Metallica uh, filed a lawsuit for a copyright inf infringement to a tune, no, no pun intended, to a tune of $10 million. It went to U.S. District Court, and they won the case. However, and probably more tragically for them, they lost in the court of public opinion. You see, the media and music critics and former fans uh, began labeling them as greedy and money-hungry. You see, Napster's case was Metallica's rich. We're poor college kids. We, we don't have money to buy their album. We're just stealing from the rich to please the poor. We're just sharing with friends. Metallica's defense was very simple. It doesn't matter if you steal from the rich or the poor. Stealing is wrong and illegal. You crossed a line. We worked hard on this. We should be able to control our own music. Well, understand, this wasn't a morally gray area because everyone, I think, agrees that stealing is morally wrong. So why, so why do I tell the story? What does this have to do with the world? You see, even though we're, we're very clear on the fact that stealing is legally and ethically wrong, public opinion moved the moral line to make stealing music and media socially acceptable simply because it makes us happy. We deserve to enjoy your hard work without cost. 
Right and wrong were redefined by popular opinion, and the moral line was moved. You see, that's the power and influence of the big top as it's coordinated by the ringmaster. John warns us of the world's influence in this way, writing in 1 John, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If, anything, if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So we see how, <clears throat> we see how the three descriptions of the world relate to each other. First to the, the, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes refers to desires for what we don't have. The third, the pride of life, refers to the pride in what we do have or what we think we have or what we want. And so the world is driven by these things, a passion for pleasure and pride in the things that we want, pride in the things that we feel like we have. And see, but when we read this word lust, it's easy to go to the extremes of immorality. But the truth is that the world is not limited to the red light district or the strip club. A lust can be a, a legitimate or an illegitimate desire that has too much weight in your life. There's the lust of the gutter and the lust of the gourmet. There's a lust for porn and a, and a lust for Monet. A lust for drugs and a lust for fine dining. You see, a lust is a craving that controls you and it robs your heart of the love of God. In fact, I like how the message paraphrases verse 16. It says, practically everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything for yourself, wanting to appear important, important has, has nothing to do with the Father. It just isolate, isolates you from him. You see, the world uses these three devices to trap followers of Jesus. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's the same today as it was in the beginning. These same devices trapped Eve in the garden, Genesis 3, 6. And when the woman saw the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, the pride of life. She took the fruit and gave it to Adam, and that decision has sent our world into a downward spiral of rebellion against God. And it's been that way ever since. This week I ran across a newspaper article that, that kind of made me smile. The author of the piece wrote this, The world is too big for us. Too much going on, too many crimes, too much violence. Try as you will, you get behind in the race. It's an incessant strain to keep pace. You lose ground. Science empties its discover, uh, discoveries on you so fast you, dis, you stagger beneath them in hopeless bewilderment. The political world is, is news seen so rapidly you're out of breath trying to keep pace with who's in and who's out. Everything is high pressure. Human nature can't endure it much longer. Does anyone, anyone feel like this? I mean, it sounds pretty accurate, doesn't it? It's interesting then, and this is what made me smile, is that it appeared in a newspaper on June 16th, 1833. 
See, I, I'm convinced there really never have been good old days, <laughs> at least not in this world. See, John gives us some very sobering truths about the world. He says, first of all, you can't love the world and God at the same time. You can't straddle the fence because love for the world pushes out love for God. Love for God pushes out love for the world. They can't coexist. But our heart, that every heart loves something. You see, he, he, couldn't, he could have ended the argument there, but he gives a couple more incentives. He says, number two, the world and its lusts passed away, pass away. In other words, you don't buy stock in a company that you know is going bankrupt. You don't build a house on a sinking island. You don't invest your money with a gang of thieves. The world is passing away. And so to set your heart on temporary things will only set you up for misery and grief. But then the third thing is he gives us a promise. If you love God, you will live with him not only now, but forever. If you love God, you will love what he loves, and that's an eternal investment. The point is the world is full of ideas that seek to, to distract and divide and destroy what God has intended for his creation. The wor world runs contrary to the truth of God. It runs contrary to his will and his love for what he's made. And so John's warning, warning us not to feel comfortable in this world as though this is the way things were meant to be. Comer writes that uh, the church is a cognitive minority. Our worldview and value system, practices and social norms are constantly at odds with our host culture. In fact, one cultural thinker put it this way, whatever was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. Those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. <laughs> you can't win. We live in a world of revolving ideas that moves us further and further away from God. Now, I realize this isn't philosophy class, but it's important that we try to understand some of these systems and ideas that are driving the world. These are the, the isms that, that Satan has been using now and for centuries to, to move us further from God. The first one, it's a big one, it's called naturalism. It basically says that man by his reasoning with his mind can figure out how the world works. So if you can put it in a tube, examine it under a microscope or explain it through natural processes, that's all you need. But the problem with this worldview is limited to the physical realm of, of what can be studied scientifically. In other words, it doesn't answer life's ultimate questions. Who you are, where you came from, why you're here, what's your purpose in life? If, if the real problems of this world are merely physical and material, I mean, why haven't these problems been eliminated and solved long ago? Why isn't the world becoming a better place? Some have said that man is the master of all things, but all we have to do is look around to realize, no, there's stronger forces at work in our world. So Paul's response to these questions is to go beyond human experience, uh, appearances and, and, <clears throat> and reports in scientific journals to what he calls the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, 
and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You see, Satan is the god of this age. He's the ringmaster and the world listens to him. That's naturalism, but there's others like escapism, the, the movement to seek distraction and relief from unpleasant realities, uh, especially seeking entertainment or engaging in fantasy. And so when life gets difficult, escapism gives people a way to take a break from reality. But they do it through drugs or virtual reality or video games, books, fantasizing a different life via social media. They want to escape. Another is materialism, a desire for wealth and material possessions with, with little interest in ethical or spiritual matters. You see, it's, it's a lifestyle that's always pursuing more. In 2015, a study found that those who give in to materialism, quote, experience fewer positive emotions, are less satisfied with life, and suffer higher levels of anxiety, depression, and substance abuse. Another is modernism. It, it breaks with the past. It rejects tr uh, tradition. It looks for new, modernized ways of expressing truth, ideas, and art. C.S. Lewis called this chronological snobbery. <laughs> it's the idea that we're always smarter than the people before us. Therefore, new ideas are better, are, are better and, and more, <clears throat> more truthful than, than those old ideas. But following modernism is, is postmodernism, which questions the, the certainty of scientific or objective efforts to explain reality. It emphasizes the multiplicity of perspectives and questions and, and absolute truth. And it's like, what? <laughs> uh, that may sound a little confusing, but I think you'll relate to this. Um, a researcher at Stanford describes postmodern ethics this way. He, he concluded, if you can make it a trend, you make it true. <laughs> but, but if you look at history, we see that the majority is often wrong. Crowds lie. And as it turns out, you shouldn't eat Tide detergent pods. <laughs> Relativism. Relativism is the belief that there, there's no absolute truth. Only the truths that a particular individual or culture happen to believe. If you believe in relativism, then you think different people from different views uh, about, <clears throat> can have different views about what's moral and immoral. What's right and wrong is, is always changing. Two plus two doesn't always equal four. It depends on your perspective. There's so many of these isms in our world. And they're always changing as, as people energized by the lies of the devil and the desires of the flesh come up with more and more ways to move God to the periphery of our culture. These are the types of world systems and philosophies that are fed to us every day. They surround us, they wanna recruit us. So the question is, how can someone who wants to pursue God respond to this world we find ourselves in. You see, lots of Christians have a weird relationship with the world. In fact, there's a variety of ways Christians are historically and, and have practically responded to what it means to live in a world that doesn't recognize or follow Jesus. In fact, some people isolate. 
They, they want to escape the world and its influence. They have their own way of communicating, their own way of doing things, and, and they avoid contact with anyone who doesn't agree with them. In other words, they quarantine themselves from the world and its influences. They hunker down and wait for Jesus. In church history, there was a whole movement that sought, that sought to separate itself from the world. My favorite is a guy named Simeon Stylites. He lived on a 60-foot pole for 30 years. It's interesting, it kind of backfired because he became sort of a tourist attraction. People made pilgrimages from, from all over to, to see Simeon on top of his pole. Well, men like this thought that if they could take themselves out of the world, they could be more spiritual. But what they found is that even in isolation, they still wrestled with the lusts of the flesh. When we lived in Philadelphia, we did a, a, hat, a hard hat tour of one of the first prisons in the U.S. As you walk through this prison, the, the, the cells were small and narrow and separated from each other. And there in the back wall, there's this a tiny slit to the outside. And so as they had the philosophy, they felt if the prisoners were in isolation for a long period, away from the influences of, of the world and people, that the, the good within them would grow like a flame and, and they would eventually be reformed. It didn't work. In a similar way, some people try to insulate themselves from the world. They don't necessarily live isolated, but while living in and among the world, their goal is to insulate themselves from it. This usually involves a lot of rules and things you can't do. And as a result, a, a Christian subculture has been born. That's why we have some fun, but also some really cringy Christian parodies of popular rock songs. For example, instead of Justin Bieber's Baby, we have a Christianized version called Save Me. Instead of Beyonce's Single Ladies, we've got a Christianized version called Modest Ladies. <laughs> instead of Michael Jackson's Beat It, we've got Read It. And then there's Black Eyed Peas. I, I've, got a, I've got a feeling tonight's going to be a God night. Yikes. <laughs> uh, some of you are going to look these up, I know. Prepare to be embarrassed. Um, you see, the noun Christian, the noun Christian is, was used to identify a group of people who were following Christ. But today it's been replaced as an adjective. In other words, it merely becomes a description for different kinds of music. And so we have Christian music and along with it, Christian movies. And we have Christian bookstores filled with Christian romance novels and Christian comics, Christian coffee houses, Christian cruises, Christian plumbers. Any, anything to keep us insulated from being fully in the world and, and to avoid the messiness of people in the world. And none of these things are bad. But if they keep us insulated from the world, they can become bad, distorted. In fact, Pastor Kent Hughes describes it this way. He says, we're all susceptible to this. It is possible to go womb to tomb in a hermetically sealed container decorated with fish stickers. As a result, it is possible to abandon our culture to the devil. In other words, completely lose our influence. 
So sometimes people isolate or insulate themselves from the world while others make it their job to irritate the world. I'm in this bad place called the world, so I need to protect myself, my children, my family. So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be way over here and I'm gonna notice the bad things in the world and I'm gonna point them out and say, that's a bad person, that's a bad idea, that's a bad thing, look how bad that is. You see, we can become really good at talking about what's bad, pointing it out, dissecting it, dissecting it. Do you know who else was really good at that? The Pharisees. The Pharisees didn't try to love people, they just pointed out all the bad people. Even Jesus, they thought, was bad because he ate with tax collectors and sinners. He mingled with them and, and they pointed him out and said, that's bad. This, this group makes it their mission to fight the world. Yell at it. Tell it, how, tell it how messed up it is. And you see, these are typically people who are more identified by what they're against than what they're for. And just as unhealthy are those who try to imitate the world. They want to make Christianity cool, make it hip and marketable, be just like them, act just like them. Uh, they, want to be, they want to be a circus act under the big top. When Jennifer and I went down to South Carolina at Gathering Point, uh, we, were, we were just driving around town. We saw advertised, and we asked uh, Pastor Syriac about this, uh, hymns and beers. <laughs> And uh, basically, it's a bunch of people who get together, get drunk, and sing hymns. Interesting. <laughs> I, I think A.W. Tozier said it best when he said, people think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We are not here to fight. We are here to frolic. The worship growing out of, each, uh, out of such a view itself has become a sort of sanctified nightclub without champagne. Wow. You see, these aren't the best responses. Instead, Jesus has asked us to permeate the world. What do I mean by that? Uh, rather than me explain, I'll let Jesus explain. It's, a, it's the night before he gives his life for us on the cross. He's praying for his disciples, his close followers. But I, I believe the principles pertain to us as well. I'm praying to the Father. He says this in John 17. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. You see, <clears throat> we don't need religious guys sitting on top of pillars or yelling from street corners. We don't need Taylor Swift songs rewritten with cringy Christianese. 
We don't need a, a drunken hymn sing. No, we need faithful followers of Jesus sitting in offices, working in hospitals, working in schools, out in the field, using uh, the abilities God has given them in the workplace to do a job with excellence and integrity, living to make Jesus make sense. Jesus has sent us into the world to permeate the world with his presence. Then Jesus is telling the Father, he said, I, I did it, I, I kept them while I was with them. I made sure they were protected. I, I kept them, but now I'm leaving and I'm asking you to keep them and protect them. Keep them and protect them from what? He's, he's not praying that they would be safe and comfortable and protected from difficulties and offenses. No, he's asking that the Father would protect them, that they would not become influenced and ruined, destroyed by the world's values. What else does Jesus say about our interaction with the world? He says, I want them in the world, not isolated, not insulated. They're not to be a part of the world, not integrated into the world. He says, I am sending them like you sent me, not to irritate, but to permeate. I think the best picture I've heard is that we're like, a, we're like a boat in the ocean. The boat doesn't hover over the water. We're, we're in the ocean, but we're not part of the ocean. We're not of the ocean. We're in it, but, <clears throat> but we're set apart from it. And if the boat starts to get some holes in it and it starts to leak, we can certainly start to slowly become part of the ocean. And it's usually the result of a DIY type of faith. That's a mix of the way of Jesus and consumerism and sexual, secular sexual ethics and radical individualism and independence. And as a result, there's a lot of shipwrecked lives that have become a part of the world. Jesus is saying, I'm sending them into the world and my prayer is that they would be sanctified, set apart for God's purposes. You see, we're sent as ambassadors representing the good news of Jesus, the good news of reconciliation with peace with a holy God, a God who is holy, other, perfect, unchanging, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, good, expressing love, truth, and compassion, along with justice. And so here we are in this physical universe filled with a world of people dominated by a system that's opposed to the values and standards of God. And this, this creates a quandary for us. You see, if you love Jesus, there's this occupational hazard to following him because the world hates those who love Jesus. Look at verse 14, the world has hated them. That's the occupational hazard. And so here we are, we're in the world, we've been sent into the world to be light and darkness, shining the light bright on Jesus. But because we're not of it, because we don't identify with it, because we don't live by its philosophies and ever-changing codes, we're different. And a world that's energized by the devil hates that we're different. One day in the 17th century, Jonas Hanway dared to go out into the streets of London under a portable roof, uh, what we now call an umbrella. <laughs> the first time he used his umbrella in the rain, people threw rocks at him. They didn't like that he was different. They didn't like that he had something better than they had. They despised him. 
They wanted to hurt him. In fact, for more than 30 years, John Hanway was considered the most ridiculous man in London. <laughs> in fact, a, a children's book has been written about him called Jonas Hanway's Scurrilous, Scandalous, Shockingly Sensational Umbrella. <laughs> and you know what? Today, almost every native Londoner carries a portable roof. <laughs> you see, if I'm in the world and not of it, Jesus says the world will hate me. I will at times feel like an outcast, the odd man out, rejected. I think this is, is likely to become more and more common in our increasingly post-Christian culture. So what does this mean? Does this mean that we become defensive, that we become militant in our complaints and reactions to, to real or even perceived injustice? In one sense, Paul does describe it as a battle. But I believe he describes it primarily as a battle for our minds and our hearts. You see, what we need to be really clear about is that our enemy is not the people of the world. The object of Jesus' love. Again, Paul says our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against people, including people of different religions, ethical, philosophical, or political perspectives. Because remember, God so loved the people of the world that he gave his one and only son. Our fight is not against them. Our fight is for them. And we can only fight for them if our minds, our hearts are focused on Jesus and not the world. We need a resilient faith that thinks correctly and loves God exclusively. Paul tells us we're to mind our minds. This really takes us back to the last series on meditating on good things. We're to mind our minds. 2 Corinthians 10 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Notice the two phrases. He first says we take captive. If you feel comfortable marking in your Bible, circle that phrase, we take captive. It literally means to, to conquer, to be under, under the control. It means to capture. We take capture every thought. We bring it under control. And then the next phrase is we make it obedient. We, <clears throat> we take every thought captive and make it obedient. Make every thought obey Christ. It literally means we bring it into submission. What's he saying? You have a choice what your mind listens to. It requires discipline, dedication. It requires constant effort. I like how Pastor Tony Evans describes this. I think about it this way. Uh, you go to the barn for dinner. You grab a big plate and you, you pile on the prime rib and roast beef and mashed potatoes with gravy. And then you get a, a huge helping of mac and cheese and a couple of slices of, of bread loaded with apple butter. And then you grab an extra plate and you load it with pie and cake and pudding. In other words, you're carrying enough calories on your tray to last a whole week. But then you come to the drink station, what do you order? A Diet Coke. <laughs> now, now that Diet Coke may, may ease your conscience about stuffing yourself, but that's about all it's going to do. 
You see, some people use the church the same way. They want a diet worship experience on Sunday. You see, after getting fat on the world through the rest of the week, they come to church saying, hey, give me something to offset all the junk I've been eating throughout the week. I mean, I've been thinking junk, spending time with junk, walking with junk, talking junk, looking at junk all week, and, 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 and they hope a diet drink on Sunday cancels it all out. <laughs> but diet church on Sunday doesn't solve your problems. If you want to love God and not the world and let the love of God set you free to live life to the full, you've got to take every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. Demolishing the strongholds, the world's systems and philosophies, as well as the strongholds of worry and approval and fear and guilt and resentment and unforgiveness, pride, insecurity. I believe all this starts with what Jesus prayed at the end of our passage in John 17. Read it in a different version. It says, verse 17, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. It's saying we're to live lives set apart to God. To be made holy, sanctified is to be set apart, sent into the world, but not part of it. And it starts with aligning our hearts with God's truth and God's heart by abiding with him, knowing him, spending time with him. You see, we, we do this so the lies of the devil are exposed, don't take root in our lives. Because you see, a, a DIY faith and a crash diet Sunday faith will ultimately sink your life into the world. However, the word of God, the truths and principles of scripture that, that you immerse yourself in, allow you to be in the world, but not of the world. God's truth allows you to walk through this crazy circus without becoming a sideshow. It's my prayer that, that we continue to grow as resilient followers of Jesus whose hearts are so entwined with God's truth and our love for him that our lives burn bright in this dark world in a way that draws people to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the world that you've created and, and the people in it. Lord, your creation declares your glory and your love for us affirms your mercy, affirms your grace toward us. Lord, help us to live in the system of this world in a way that, that points people to you. Help us to, to love people well. Help us to pursue you with passion. And Father, may we be resilient in our minds and hearts to keep following Jesus, to keep our eyes on Jesus. Father, thank you for not abandoning us to this hopeless world. But thank you for giving us life with you, full life, forever. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you have a great week. Uh, hope to see you next week online as we continue the, to expose the truth about lies. All right, take care.